Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the CX Goalkeeper Podcast. Your host, Greg, will have smart discussions with friends, experts, and thought leaders on customer experience, transformation, and leadership. Please follow this podcast on your preferred platform. I am sure you will enjoy the next episode with the guest I selected for you. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the next episode of the CX Goalkeeper podcast. Uh, today I'm really super thrilled because Stefan Leutold from the company Stimmt, it's a small consulting company in Switzerland around customer experience, is here together with me. Hi Stefan, how are you? Hi Greg, I'm good, thank you. Thank you very, thank you very much for your time. We know in Switzerland that you are really the expert for the topic human-centered design. And in, in that case, I want really to say thank you very much for your time, sharing your knowledge, your 20 or more years of experience on this topic, on, on, uh, on this podcast. And therefore, thank you very much for your time. You're very welcome. Thank you. As usual, we start this uh, game with a short introduction of the top player. Today's top player is Stefan Leutold, and therefore, Stefan, could you please introduce yourself and share also your, your values together with us? Hmm. As my name is Stefan. Uh, I'm a father, husband, entrepreneur, consultant. I got a master's degree in theoretical physics and a PhD in cognitive psychology. And what drives me professionally and in private life is understanding human behavior better, be able to explain why people do what they do. Um, I like learning new theories and seeing them in action. Pushes me a lot to, to read and then see what I read in the real world. Um, that's mostly related to psychology. And um, what also drives me is I believe in uh, right and wrong. I think not everybody should do as they please. And as a physicist, uh, you're used to proving stuff and you can always say, okay, this is the right way to do it and this is not the right way to do it. And this is also uh, a lot that drives me professionally, finding out what is the right way to do something. Thank you, Stefan. You said behavioral science and I am now feeling a bit uncomfortable because I don't want to make the wrong movements that you're saying now, what you're doing and what you're not doing or that you try to find out what I'm thinking about. But <laughs> as I know you, I feel comfortable because we can have a nice discussion together. Let's start the game. It's uh, human-centered design. A lot of people, a lot of people uh, discuss about, speak about. Not many people are really able to apply human-centered design in a proper way. And you and Stimmt are able to do that, and you that did that several times in a lot of different um, in and industry. Could you please share with us what is human-centered design? Mm -hmm. Um, today, human-centered design is a process as specified in an ISO standard. Uh, it's part of the ISO 9241. Uh, and the proce process basically says, uh, if you build any kind of system, and the original focus was on computer systems, you should start with understanding the actual humans that have to or want to use that system in the future. And then you should come up with a design solution addressing the user's customer's requirements. And finally, you should test the whole thing on a conceptual level to find out whether it works before you invest a lot of time and money to build it and then actual users can or won't use it. Thank you for this short introduction. Let's, let's quickly deep dive. You said human, human as an employee, human as a customer. Could you elaborate, please elaborate a bit on that? 
Yeah, the um, a lot of the stuff that we're seeing today are not designed for humans. All of us humans, for example, is stuff that you can't see, but you should respond to that on the screen. Um, and then, then the system asks you, can you enter this or that number in a registration form? And then you have to get out and search your entire apartment because you just don't know where it is. <laughs> but the, the system requests it at this very moment or otherwise the whole process is doomed. Um, that's something that's very easy to, to understand. You, it should be fixed and we should know that it occurs. Um, when it comes to employees or to customers, um, there's other dimensions that are relevant. Um, for example, the, the goals for employees. So what do you want them to do? How do you want them to feel? And that should be incorporated in the design process. Because what we, what we do here at the office uh, should serve the people who work here. Um, what we do for customers should help them buy stuff or use stuff and com complain about stuff and get, get support issues fixed. Um, and all of this is relevant when we do the, the process and uh, should be incorporated in the requirements that should be applied to design solutions. Thank you, Stefan. And perhaps to visualize what you are saying, there is always this big question and this picture that we are seeing in the social media. On one side, the search bar of uh, of Google, it's only one line where you can type in something. Yeah. And on the other yeah. side, you see the cockpit of an uh, airplane Boeing 747, and yeah. you need to find out where you need to, to push to get, uh, to get your answer. Yeah. And I think this is really a very nice visualization. But yeah. now you, you already shared that a bit, but really let's deep dive on that. Why is it nowadays relevant for organization human center design? Yeah, many organizations uh, are still throwing a lot of resources at solutions they're not sure will work when they implement them. Uh, the very smart people sit there, figure out what should be done about a system, and then they go about implementing it without asking anyone who's a potential user or customer of, of the outcome, is that what you actually need? Um, is that what serves your purpose? Um, and then this goes goes wrong. And it's most obvious when it comes to new trends like artificial intelligence or the Internet of Things or the metaverse. We, we barely know what it is, but we are sure it will boost productivity or sales or whatnot if we can just pull it off as a company. <laughs> and, and then uh, people make big bets on it. And the reality is actual users have actual barriers. We don't even understand, but we're still willing to bet huge budgets um, that they're going to use it and it will be successful for us. And in most cases, it's really easy to do a prototype and checking whether users get what the solution is about and whether they really integrate the solution into their daily lives. Um, and I think it's uh, actually quite useful to do that uh, with the human-centered design process to find out what they need be before you uh, derive what a system should be able to do. I think you, you mentioned that uh, not willing to be unpolite, with, we discovered that, but speaking about uh, virtual reality, augmented reality and metaverse, these are solutions looking for problems because we need to find out for which use case they, they really fit. And I think perhaps at this point in time, it's, it could be also interesting to quickly deep dive into these three phases that you mentioned, uh, understand, design, and then test, and then repeating and repeating and repeating. Mm -hmm. Could you let's start with the with the understand phase? How do you normally structure uh, the, the 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 first phase? Mm -hmm. 
Um, the, the, the understand phase serves the purpose to generate the actual requirements of a product or solution or process. Not the things that we think it should do, but the things that it actually should do because the users or customers or employees tell us. Um, and th the first hurdle is always to figure out who do we use for interviews? Because not everybody agrees on the primary type of user of a new product or system. And, and uh, of course, uh, as in strategy problems, people say, yeah, basically, this should be all things for all people. And because that's not possible, the, the first hurdle is always to figure out who is it for now? Uh, what kind of employee, what type of user? Um, and from there on, everything else can be derived. And then we usually interview or observe users, look at statistics, if there are some statistics about actual usage of a former product, for example. Um, and then we pull that together to, to model behavior that uh, helps us understand or even predict how users behave um, because they're driven by certain goals or motives or, or needs uh, or attitudes. And then we, we can figure out what a system should do or a product should do in response. As I am a learner of these methods, I already know the answer that you are going to give, but I think this is extremely important because a lot of people are saying, okay, Stefan, I understand you, but you need to interview a lot of people to get the information and to find out what are these behavioral drivers. And um, from your point of view or from the statistics, how many people or interviewee are required to understand how uh, this uh, group of people, this segment are be is behaving? Yeah. It is a, a huge body of literature, um, and, and even some of my uh, ex-employees have written their master's thesis in psychology about this. How many people do you need uh, to understand basically all the requirements that are really important to build a system or a product or a process? Um, and it turns out to be somewhere between five and, and eight or ten, um, not more because the, you can see when you draw up charts how many new things do you find out in the next do you find out in the next interview so the, for example i learned 10 important things in the first interview then i learned these same 10 things but two additional things in the second interview and in the third interview i learned uh, three more things and all of a sudden you will realize after five through eight ten interviews you won't learn anything new um, so you can stop there. And then this is, a, I think, like 40 years old now, the, the first curves. Uh, how much new knowledge do you gather from the next interview that you conduct? And then, of course, if you if you are through and want to test the solution in the third stage, at some point you, you will need to quantify, is, is this addressing 80% of the possible market or is it addressing 5% of the possible market? And this is very important also um, but it's not necessary to understand once you know where your focus is, uh, you need five to 10 users from that very group that you put your focus on, and that's enough. The, the one interesting thing is that five to 10 and not 500 to 100, and <laughs> therefore it's, it's extremely in interesting because it's always possible to get customer and employees participating to, to these interviews. Perhaps yeah. also from your experience, are customers willing to participate to these interviews? Yeah, yeah. In, in the B2C context, it's never a problem. Um, and sometimes 
companies say, yeah, well, but we are in the B2B uh, area and we need to interview oncologists or uh, corporate clients of big banks and they are not willing to give interviews. And on the contrary, most of them, they're glad that finally somebody takes the time to really understand what they need and understand where they see the problem in processes or in offerings uh, of our clients. And uh, mostly they're, they're very glad to share their opinion uh, and to see the results. If, if one a year later you can say, oh, this big change happened in my online banking uh, because people like me gave an interview, uh, which seemed uh, that's very satisfying for them too. Thank you. I think we understand a bit more now the understand phase. Sorry for the for the joke. And we move into the design and into the design phase. And there what always stick in my mind, you said that several months ago, it's this sentence, users are not designers. Could you please elaborate a bit on that? Yeah. Yeah, that's um <laughs> one of the principles from one of my favorite books. It's from 1993. And uh, the book is called Usability Engineering by Jacob Nielsen. And then Jacob Nielsen is one of the, the founders of the whole uh, field of human-centered design um, that obviously has got a lot in common with the uh, human-centered design process. And uh, Jacob Nielsen makes the point that um, many managers or many system engineers believe because they also are somehow users of everything they produce. They, they can figure out how a system should behave and what it should do for actual users. And, and this is never true. And uh, one of the main reasons is that all the implicit knowledge that they have isn't available for actual users. And so in, in our first few uh, mostly big banking projects in the beginning of the 2000s, uh, like 25 years back, um, we always had to tell the banks, this system is perfectly designed for people who have a four-year apprenticeship in banking. But all that knowledge that you have is not available for your actual users of the online banking system, so the system should be designed for them. Um, and uh, so th these are two directions to look at it. So users are not designers. We, we can just ask them what they need and they can tell us because they have no understanding of the domain. Um, on the other hand, managers are not designers because they themselves don't understand how actual users behave and what they need. It goes both ways. And what you're saying, it's, it's really interesting because we are speaking about design. And in this design phase, you create prototypes that you try also to, to, to align and to, to understand if they are pro working properly. Mm -hmm. uh, how many cycles are required or how many prototypes are required? Because I think, and I had also some experiences on that, mm -hmm. you create the first prototype, you're super happy, you follow the process, and then mm -hmm. uh, the user are saying that's not what we were asking for. <laughs> what, what are your yeah. advices there? Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> it, it depends on how big the, the whole system is and where you start, but, but usually you try to organize a design process so you go from the big ideas to the small details. For example, if 15 years back a client says, I need mobile banking, we don't start with a prototype that details 100 screens of a potential mobile banking system with all possible interactions. 
We just draw up two or three main screens of main tasks that serve main goals of our primary user group, and then show those screens with the corresponding screens uh, in a laptop, for example, to a bunch of users and try to figure out what does it do for them? Uh, where, where do they need mobile now when they explain how they integrate it in their lives? Um, and is it really better than the current solution? And if it is, we might say, okay, first round, pass. <laughs> So how do we detail this out for the second round? Another type of user group or more screens with more details? And then you tackle the problem like, like this. And then very hard problems. It's, it's, yeah, I think it's quite frequent that you need two or three rounds to tackle a pretty hard problem, even five maybe. Um, but then you probably call it quits and say, after, if I have five rounds of user testing, then all the five rounds say, don't do it, we should probably not do it and do something else and abandon the feature or the project or whatever is in scope. And as you're saying, I think it's really interesting because at the end, it's exactly the same. If uh, companies implement the complete mobile banking, as you said, and then test it with user, is much more expensive than having these quite proto quick prototypes. And after five iterations, you say, I don't need that. Yeah. But now let's move into the, the validate phase. How do you structure the validate phase? Yeah, so if you um, have a design that can be tested, and that's usually possible with, with very uh, low frequency prototypes, of course, you can develop a system and test the developed system uh, that really works as it would in the real world. But usually, um, we always say, if you can show it on paper, and, and for, for pe the people looking at the paper, it looks like the actual thing, what goes on in their head is much like as it would go in the, with the actual thing. So it, they don't really differentiate uh, between what they see on paper and what they see on, on a mobile phone, for example. Um, so, so you can test stuff out with paper prototypes and then probably clickable prototypes. Um, or, or what we do when, when it comes to value propositions, we, we just drop a few uh, ads that you would see when you walk through Zurich main station and you see the ads hanging around the walls or Google ads that you could click on or, or not click on. And, and then we, we just see what happens if we show people, uh, this is a Google search result screen and one of the ads that they see is the one we drew up and all the other ads are actual ads that are on the market today. And we'll see what do they click, what do they comment? And then we find out whether our stuff works or, or doesn't work. It's it, mostly, you need, to think through that before you start the design, obviously, because the design needs to produce stuff that's tested as a prototype, but um, almost everything can be prototyped and tested um, with, with the same amount of, of users, like five to 10 users are usually enough to, to learn whether what you did is successful um, or not successful. Thank you very much. We went through this cycle understand, design, and validate, and it starts mm -hmm. again. But now let's start it, or let's discuss really about an example. Do Can you uh, share with us an example of a successful implementation that you did in the past? Yeah. Um, yeah, as we're talking about banking, probably one of my first big banking projects was an, was an online banking redesign back in 2004. And in 2004, uh, when we analyzed user behavior and, and talked to users in the understand phase, we noticed, um, of course, why do you log into an online bank to pay your monthly bills? 
but what do you always do before you pay your monthly bills? You look at the uh, accounts. Uh, so how much do I have <laughs> before I just send away a few bills and then realize, oh, uh, I don't have enough money in my account to, to pay all my bills. Um, now, guess what's on the home screen of the, our client's bank? The home screen that you see after you log in. All the bills. Yeah, no, nothing, right? It's empty. And, and why is it empty? Be, because the engineer's task building the online bank is to make all the online banking functions accessible. And because the, they have no reason to believe that something uh, is, is much more frequent than anything else, they don't just uh, take it out of the whole navigation and put it on the front screen. They just give you the entire navigation and say, okay, welcome, this is the online bank. So pick a navigation point and then we'll see what you can do. Um, but that's not how users think, right? Their job is to check whether I have, for example, uh, did my did my employer pay me so I can now go and do my, my bills? This is what they check. This is their task. And the system should be uh, optimized for that task. And now we said, okay, guys, after login, they should see all their accounts um, and they should see how much money is in there. And then you can ask them, what do you want to do next? Because, you know, this is what they always do. And they changed that. And a few years later, all the other banks in Switzerland copied that. And now when you log in, there, there's not a single bank that I remember that doesn't show the accounts and the balance after, directly after login, because that's the only thing that makes sense, starting from, from the understand phase, when you really know what users are doing. But I think what you are saying, it's also related to the past, because when there was no online banking and you still had this small booklet checking all your transactions, the first thing that you were looking for was how much money do I have in my account? Because yeah. then you were you were aware of can I spend that, that money or uh, can't yeah. I spend that money? It's, it's really, really interesting. And thinking about your experience, uh, what advice could you, would you give to, to companies who are considering embracing human-centered design as part yeah. of their transformation journey? Yeah. Um, I think what, what, what sometimes happens, and I can't say it's always uh, a disaster, but it's very, very hard is that people want to start big. So let, let's, but now we are convinced it's really necessary. We need a human-centered design team, customer experience team, user experience team, however you want to call it. Then we hire a bunch of people and just do it toll gates in every project and completely different way of working together and the different jobs for different people. I think that's very hard. And I would recommend against that. What I would do is start small pick a few people who are willing to, to change something internally um, and then just pull them together and, for example, do a, a boot camp, do the Google Sprint for, from the book that Jake Knapp has written. Um, because then you will see with a little bit of preparation, a little bit of help from people who know how the process works, you can start on a Monday and then uh, tell your management on a Friday which of their ideas that they gave you on Monday actually worked with actual users and which of their ideas are a little bit silly and probably won't work if they're implemented. And this only takes a week of everybody's time. Uh, is, is great fun and demonstrates the value of doing stuff in, in that fashion. And, and if you'd like it, uh, you can scale it up afterwards. And, um, and the, other, the other thing is, is start low fidelity. So no fancy apps. Uh, no new software to work internally, no eye tracking stuff, 
no new people hired, just start as low fidelity as possible, just printing stuff out. If, if, it's, if it was for me, print stuff from PowerPoint, uh, do your prototypes with PowerPoint in the first iteration, uh, and just understand how it works for you and, and what you like to do with that. And, and then just take it from there. And then don't buy, we have clients who, who buy eye tracking software um, to, to, to build up a usability lab. And then they, they realize eye tracking is one method amongst dozens of methods that's used every other year uh, to really optimize something and only eye tracking optimize. But now you've bought the eye tracker, so everything is measured with eye tracking. Uh, it doesn't make sense, but you need to do it. And, and that's not what I would recommend. Thank you, Stefan. And now move, moving from your advices to the second part of this discussion, it's about leadership. Mm -hmm. And uh, you gave some advice, but I think throughout your career, you, you learned also a lot. Could you share, please, with us one of your biggest failure and what you learned from it? Yeah, um, the <laughs> failure in, in my business, the, the consulting business is uh, pretty simple. You hire a lot of great people to work on a lot of great projects. And everybody's responsible for themselves and everybody's happy uh, doing great work. Um, but, but there's a very crucial thing that I got wrong uh, a few times. Uh, and, and I always hope it never happens again that, that I trust consultants that they can flourish in a new role, for example, after promotion um, or in a new complex project. Um, for example, internationally, different languages, different cultures, um, uh, some challenges that they never encountered or a nasty client or a new colleague that's not really a fit and um, my, my biggest mistake is to just let that be and say well I had to do it in my 25 years as an entrepreneur and consultant uh, in my company so, so you, you, of course you can do it too because if I'm able to do it you're able to do it and sometimes this is wrong the, the don't recognize the warning signs and uh, things go south before I have a chance to react. And uh, then the very good people quit or don't deliver very good projects. Um, and that's a shame and the shame's on me. Thank you for, for sharing this story where we can learn. And I think uh, can a lot of people can also empathize with, with what you are saying. Perhaps to, to the last question in, on, on leadership, uh, what's your definition of re resilience? Yeah, of course, for everything, uh, if there's an ISO norm, I uh, use the ISO norm as a human-centered design, and there's an ISO norm for resilience too. And that norm says resilience is the ability to adapt to change in the environment. Um, and and that's, uh, that's something that I'm happy to say uh, I got it down. Uh, I can become uh, happy very quickly in new environments and can arrange myself with new circumstances. But many people, uh, they feel treated unfairly or change happens too fast and the impact on their lives is too big and they have problem accommodating and adjusting um, to the change in environment and uh, they're not as resilient. 
I really like your your answer and how you structured that because the first came the physicians using the the definition and then the psychologist also sharing the how you are really living that and therefore thank you very much for that. We are coming to an end of this game but I still have three questions for you in the extra time of this uh, of this episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 10 10 years from now we are back on the CX goalkeeper podcast what are we discussing about? Um, one of the things we're sort of be discussing is what happens as in as in uh, journalism, right? Some people still want to read the print edition, although it's almost not feasible anymore to keep that up. Uh, what do you do with them? We will discuss what happens in the metaverse. The majority um, of the players in the industry, they will have switched to deploying algorithms that generate virtual concerts of, with virtual bands generating uh, artificial songs on the spot for people who want to watch that and have time now and probably have a subscription uh, with the provider. Um, What do we do with the majority of customers um, that don't want that, that want actual musicians or actual artists uh, can be dance as well, right? Doesn't have to be music. What do we do with the majority of customers who want actual people on an actual stage and meet other actual people right next to them and travel to places to to have the uh, concert experience? Uh, I think that will be an unsolved problem because the investments in metaverse uh, are huge and uh, everybody wants to have an application and get the share of of the of the cake. Um, I'm not sure we turn out as people now expect. And I think we could apply human-centered design to understand that better. Yeah, of course. It's a, it's a, that's one of the prime examples, new technology, right? So if we, if we show people this is what a virtual concert would feel like, so you and your friends are either sitting in the same room all wearing the... the uh, how, what's the weight of the Apple Vision? I think... I think one journalist said after 25 to 30 minutes, it, it's uh, the weight is uh, too much to bear and you need to take it off because it, it, it doesn't feel right after 25 to 30 minutes. I, I forgot the actual weight of the thing. But if that doesn't come down, down dramatically, people just sit there with huge things on their head. And after half an hour, they will go, well, ah, can, this, can this concert be come to an end, please? Uh, I need to take it off now, but I don't want to. I uh, don't want to interrupt the whole thing for everybody else. And uh, yeah, you, you, you could describe that to people and say, well, so what's going to go down now? What, what's cool about that? Oh, my friends in the US can join a concert with friends in Zurich. Uh, yeah, that's great. And what's not cool about it? Yeah, okay, if, you, if I now feel the actual thing, it's a little bit heavy um, for, for what I'm trying to do here, enjoy a concert with my friends. And, and you can test that, of course, now before you invest uh, millions or billions even uh, to come up with stuff where you see, oh, people take off their glasses after half an hour. We didn't expect that. <laughs> um, Stefan, I think we have another topic for the next episode. I know that you love to be on, on podcast. Yeah, <laughs> and therefore, yeah. Perhaps yeah. I will wait some weeks <laughs> or months to ask again. But yeah. I think anyhow, I'm quite sure that uh, some people will have uh, some question around what we discussed and human-centered design. What's the best way to contact you? Uh, I think you find me on my website, www.periodstimmt.ch. Uh, uh, um, and uh, stimmt is spelled S-C-I-M-M-T. 
Um, and you, you have to know German though, um, or have a good translator activated in your browser. Uh, as we are find... speaking about, as we are speaking about the future, ChatGPT can help you translating <laughs> what is on the on the Stimmt page. <laughs> but we can also share if you are if you, if you allow that your LinkedIn um, profile so that people then mm -hmm. can contact yeah, directly. Thank you very much. And now we are coming to the last question: Is Stefan's golden nugget? It's something that we discussed, or something new that you would like to leave to the audience? Yeah, uh, yeah. My golden nugget is: a successful company is close to its customers, and a really successful company is also close to its employees, uh, because purpose, strategy, profits, uh, whatever else follows. Thank you very much, Stefan. Stefan, please stay with me. I really want to say thank you for everything that you shared together with us and everything that you are doing for me also outside of this podcast. Thank you very much. Stay with me. To the audience, it's everything. I hope you enjoyed this discussion as much as I did. Stay tuned for the next episode and we'll have feedback. Please let us know what you think about this episode. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye. If you enjoyed this episode, please share the word of mouth. Subscribe it, share it. Until the next episode, please don't forget, we are not in a B2B or B2C business, we are in a human-to-human -human environment. Thank you.